Imagine this. Early one misty morning, a peculiar man steps out of the fog and onto the quad at the University of Washington in Seattle. He is dressed in a woolen tunic, decorated with colorful trim and fastened with a medieval brooch. Silver and amber pendants hang from his neck, and two animal horns hang from his belt. He raises one horn to his lips and blows. Five men, similarly clad, appear out of the fog behind him. Students on their way to class might have mistaken them for Vikings, but they carry no weapons. Instead, they carry instruments, and they are on their way to class too. Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Hello everybody, we are a folk band from Latvia called Vilkači uh, that uh, translates into werewolves. It's not the classical werewolves that you maybe think about when you think about Hollywood movies or Twilight or something like that. It's, <laughs> it's, it has nothing in common with that. UW was the first stop on Vilkači's goodwill tour of the United States to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Latvia's Declaration of Independence in 1918. Their costumes are archaeological reconstructions of Latvian clothing from the 9th to 12th centuries, a period the band sees as the last moment of complete political and cultural independence for Latvia. Uh, the Crusaders fought only, not, not only fought Jerusalem, but also the Northern Crusades, during which German, well mainly German Crusaders, invaded the last pagan lands of uh, Europe. Uh, at that time, Scandinavia was long uh, already uh, uh, Christianized, but the Baltic lands uh, gained their name as the land of werewolves and witches. At that time, the lands were invaded by uh, the German crusaders. Most of the Baltic people were subjugated to their rule. But there were people who didn't want to submit, and the place they could flee and maintain their freedom was the forest. And imagine what a person looks like when he's been living in the forest for years. <laughs> imagine them uh, living in the forest for years. What are you eating? Berries? Are you eating some fish you catch? What are you wearing? You are wearing the skins of the animals you have killed. 
once in a while you want to get some good food. Where can you get the good food? From the farmers, from the landlords that are ruling the country. And imagine now, put yourself in the Christian mind in the medieval times. Everything you do not understand, you explain as magic or some sort of mystery. And during the full moon, once every time, some weird half-human, half half-wolf-looking person coming into your uh, farmstead during the full moon, steals some animal and drags it to the forest. Now you would think, oh, that must be those werewolves, because werewolves in Latvian is called vilkachi, which literally translates as wolf eyes. So it's a wolf looking, but uh, like a person standing and stealing your animals. Now, why the full moon? I think it's uh, pretty clear why during the full moon. Because it's the brightest. Uh, during full moon, at midnight, is the brightest. And you can walk around unnoticed. You see everything, but they don't see you. And the best that the farmers and the landlords could see is really some kind of a wolf looking thing stealing your animals and dragging them to the forest. So uh, we refer to Vilkachi not only as the uh, warrior protectors, but also sort of politi uh, political uh, partisans, you know. Freedom not, fighters. Freedom fighters, not submitting to invaders' rule. Werewolves carry a lot of symbolism for the members of Vilkachi, both as defenders of Latvian sovereignty and as defenders of Latvian pre-Christian folk belief. The image of the freedom fighter werewolf holds a lot of cachet because medieval Latvians preserved and passed on much of their pre-Christian religious beliefs. There's general consensus that it wasn't 100% religious conversion. This is Guntis Smidgens, professor of Scandinavian studies at the University of Washington and a specialist on Baltic folklore. Partly because it was not voluntary and partly because, uh, because the old beliefs persisted even even when people convert if people converted to Christianity alongside the Christian faith. So beliefs about nature, about spirits in forests and trees and in the sea kind of fill a, 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 a void that people that is not filled by organized religion and that's why it survives even today. So you find in, in uh, even in current times, people have special feelings towards trees, towards certain animals, uh, toads and snakes that probably have been passed from generation to generation, never really explaining it as doctrine, but simply this attitude towards nature, which, which it survives not really in opposition to Christian faith, but just kind of coexisting. Latvia is kind of unique. I mean, you, you do study Scandinavian, the Scandinavian culture, but Latvia is very unique uh, in the amount of amount of songs and the amount of lyrics that we do have. And there's, I mean, that we still know. And the number is, for the summer solstice, there are 23,000 different um, these verses. 23,000 verses uh, and countless melodies. That's for a population that has never been higher than 2 million people. Yeah. yeah. It's quite difficult and hard for um, me particularly to talk about, with the uh, young people, to talk about uh, 
mythology, religion, and uh, beliefs that I believe in, because uh, I think always it kind of makes me look weird. Uh, It becomes uncomfortable for me to explain them, because I... um, Well, the thing is, you look at us right now, that we are like... uh, so some kind of people that came, climbed out of the uh, Iron Age with, with weird clothes, with uh, wooden instruments, and we sing some kind of ancient songs and talk about thunder and God and things we believe. Uh, no, we're fully functional uh, as members of society. We have our day jobs that are paid. We uh, go to work every day. We have families. And it's not like uh, we have uh, like a huge tree stump in our living room that we bow down to. No, we have... Uh, we don't. We don't live in a forest. Yeah, we don't live in forests. We live in suburbs on the, or the center of the city. Our days are very much like all the other people have. Uh, only difference is that um, when the, there's the summer solstices or the winter solstices or the autumn or the spring solstices. Uh, there are things that we do, just uh, we come together, we sing, we celebrate, and uh, we keep the tradition alive. Uh, a lot of people that do, that do that maybe do not deeply believe in those things, but still they uh, believe that the tradition is our um, the greatest value that a, a country can have. As a, And we're a small country, but uh, we're very proud of our traditions. Like the songs that are sung during the summer solstice, there are many folk songs which delve into Latvia's pre-Christian mythology. The mythology in these songs may be difficult to express in speech, but it finds compelling expression through song. The songs have survived for centuries because each generation finds their own meaning in them, and sometimes the songs find a place in people's daily lives. Yeah, it is kind of uh, difficult to explain. Well, essentially, Latvian mythology personifies the nature. So we have uh, the sun. So in the morning or in the evening, I sing to the sun directly. Um, I also sing to the thunder, uh, which is, well, I guess you can kind of relate them to the Greek or whatever, uh, Roman Mars. It's Yeah, it is, it is kind of difficult to explain. Yeah. Because we have deities that are responsible for a certain thing, and then there's God. And well, he kind of unites them. <laughs> He's he's the but he's not like the Christian God. He's like the uh, the dude. He, 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 he's he's the wise one. He's the good one. He doesn't punish you. It's not like that. He will send plague to your country because uh, something you didn't pay the tenth of your salary to him. He's not like that. He's uh, he's a good guy. Uh, a very big and important role of uh, the deities of the uh, has uh, the thunder god. Latvian thunder god, and he's uh, very similar to maybe uh, Scandinavian Thor, uh, but um, he's the uh, god of action, uh, protector of hunters, of fighters, and he's a um, force that you have that have to be reckoned because he's a force in also in nature, but also in the spiritual world. The next song what we're going to sing is about a dialogue with a. Uh, thunder God with a young warrior, where the young warrior has slaughtered a nine-headed beast, but uh, he has now a big problem. He has blood all over his uh, clothes, so he asks the Thunder God, how can he please clean those clothes? Because that's the 
important thing for him. Because they're very nice clothes. Yeah. <laughs> well, so it's kind of a mix. I mean, it's, it's mythological, and yet you're asking advice to somebody who represents maybe the masculine side of things, and yet the advice is very specific and very practical. Like, how can I do my laundry? Well, there's a laundromat over there. It's, it's kind of what the song is saying. So yeah. Instead of the laundromat, I mean, you dry the clothes on the oak uh, in uh, which nine suns sets. And Not only this song, but uh, uh, in Latvian mythology, there's this thing that you don't have to be a special person or someone who has special education or someone who has special knowledge. Anyone can speak to the gods in his head. And this yeah. song actually shows that you, if you have some question, if you have some problems, then you can directly refer or speak to the gods and you can ask the thing that is important for you at the moment. So you don't have to be a special person, you don't have to have a special knowledge, but you, you, can, you have this possibility to ask. And uh, for me, and uh, I think for the other guys, uh, that gives a special power, the inner power that you know you always have, a, have someone behind your back that's going to that's gonna help you in the, in the, in the, in the way that, that you're going to do things. You can interact, so like Trump said, um, you, you have God on speed dial. Like what you hear? Be sure to subscribe to Crossing North wherever you get your podcasts. Crossing North is sponsored by the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, and we need your help to grow our podcast. Consider donating to one of the many funds that help support the department's mission to discover, preserve, and transmit fundamental knowledge about the languages, literature, history, politics, and culture of the Scandinavian, Nordic, and Baltic countries. A gift to the Friends of Scandinavian Languages and Literature Fund will be especially helpful to the production of Crossing North. Go to scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu. So before... Uh the modern world singing was a part of a day of life. Again, Professor Guntis Smidgens. People would be speaking in poetry while they're working and singing in poetry uh, while they're working, while, uh, morning, night. Uh, it was much more common to be singing in everyday life. Now, with uh, urbanization, with moving to cities, song is a different kind. There's a different kind of singing that started in the 1800s in an organized choir movement, which at that time, under the Russian Tsar's rule, was one of the forms of free expression.
of less censored expression. Uh, and that was a place where Latvians met in the choir, and that grew into a movement of choirs coming together to sing in larger choirs and larger choirs where other kinds of social organization wasn't possible. The choirs were a possible, um, I guess, supposedly non-political way of gathering and expressing exp- expressing your feelings and community. And uh, so song became the meeting place for Latvians in the 1800s, and the song and the choral movement has just grown and, and flourished since then. Vilkachi is part of a larger network of folk reenactors who make traditional clothes, play traditional games, share traditional foods, and above all, celebrate Latvia's rich folk traditions. The band has existed for over 18 years. Members come and go, but the current members, Edgars, Toms, Yumis, Andris, Juris, and Edwards, have been singing together for the past five years. I joined this choir because they had a, a vocal pedagogue or a vocal coach for free if you sang in a choir. And that's basically that reason I joined the choir. Uh, so thanks, choir. <laughs> you have improved the uh, sound of Ilkachi. Uh, but actually, I, I grew up in a very traditional family. Uh, my mother is a traditional singer. And I don't remember this, but she told me that I used to know about a hundred songs when I was two years old. So the Latvian roots have been with me since birth, basically. And I have this opportunity to pass it on and practice it myself, thanks to these guys. Uh, <clears throat> opposite of Humes, I was brought up in a very classical um, family where my, profes- where my father is a professor of music, so classical music only has been played in my my uh, house uh, while I was growing up. But uh, I uh, found uh, folk music because I was trying to f- uh, get in touch with my roots. Uh, I wanted to found, find some kind of deeper meaning and um, classical music, of course, is uh, very likable and uh, it's something that I still listen to very often. But um, in Latvian traditional music, there is something deeper inside that trigger, triggers uh, uh, the, the inner voice. Uh, we call it the blood voice. That's a bad translation. It's uh, the thing that uh, vibrates your inner feelings, that uh, you feel that you're in presence of something uh, more spiritual and uh, very me- meaningful to you. What Edgars is talking about, this feeling, I definitely got it when I um, started going to Vilkacha rehearsals. What's interesting that I get the same feeling when listening to American gospel music. I actually play the guitar in a, like a gospel choir, and physically the sensations are very similar. And it's definitely not religious. It has to do with the harmonies uh, and maybe with this power that you get from hearing, I guess, that amount of people singing in specific ways. Well, it's like, you know, shivers down your spine, those kind of tingling sensations. Uh, teary eyes sometimes. Yeah. To, me, to me, music is physical. I wouldn't say spiritual or anything. Or spirituality to me is physical. Ozuelini, 
One of the things that we try to do is um, stay as authentic as possible. So our in instruments are bagpipes as much as we can uh, find the tradition. It's a lot stronger in Estonia, in Spain, in France, in Bulgaria than it is in Latvia. Uh, for example, out of the two bagpipes that we play, one of them is made after an Estonian example, and the other one is maybe just an improvisation of the master. Also, the drums, they're made out of... Uh, a whole tree stump that's been hollowed out with cow hides. Uh, and the recorders, for example, we try to play wooden ones and then we kind of feel guilty about playing plastic instruments even though they're more precise. But then uh, we do listen to hip-hop, we do listen to rock music, uh, and we understand that the ear of a to today's listener, it's used to certain things. And maybe maybe we even add harmonies that we like but some hardcore uh, traditionalists would say that that's wrong and that's that we're doing some things that are wrong so and we maybe add these things slightly as rarely as possible so we kind of do a combination of all of those things one of our primary goals is not to keep the tradition encapsulated and frozen in time, we try to bring it uh, to the modern listener. We are interested that we can spread our tra tradition, we can make it more popular among uh, teens and youngsters in our country, so it uh, would be alive and would be passed on from generation to generation, and they have some uh, standards and they demand um, some kind of quality. And the trade-off is, for example, not playing the wooden instruments and recordings, but plastic ones because they're more in tune. So we kind of, we're cheating on the traditional uh, purest um, sound maybe, but we gain the sound quality that uh, the listener requires because we have to engage the ones that are not aware of um, of our songs or of, of this uh, folk m movement but if we can capture their attention with the with the music the sounds the quality the quality then after that we can um, go on and teach them about the values about the, the meanings of the songs and um, the history and everything that comes with it
I also grew up in a pretty traditional family, but we actually uh, sang together rarely. But the times we did, I know that the first songs that I have ever learned to sing were from my father. Although my mother was a music teacher, I learned them from my father. And it played out nicely when, during my teenage years, I realized that I don't have to just listen to music. I can sing along. And the words that really uh, got to me, the lyrics, were from Latvian warriors' men's songs. I listened to them, I sung them, and I thought there's such power and independence in them that I want to be like that. But then I joined a National Guard ensemble where uh, we sang these uh, traditional songs. And then I just uh, went on at some point to join Vilkachi to sing more ancient songs, you know, something more basic. And I really enjoyed it. Kurkunga mita dibiri ka tie mūsu baleliņ Hey, ai, 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 ka tie mūsu baleliņ No zirdziņa nolēcotī pa kalnītes norībēj Hey, ai, 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 pa kalnītes norībēj Kurkunga mita dibiri ka tie mūsu baleliņ It's more about uh, the song itself about the lyrics. I believe the music is just the way to make the uh, listener really listen and hear it out. So you can make adaptations to music, but the words don't get changed because they're the message. There's also a very good, good point um, how Latvia is maybe different from uh, the nearby countries, even the Scandinavian countries, you know, like Finland, Norway, Sweden. Uh, for example, uh, Norway and Sweden, they have such beautiful music. Their fiddle or violin, it, those melodies are incredible. Latvians don't have that specifically. But the thing about Latvia is that um, we have way, way, way more young people that practice folklore or these traditions and sing these songs. Uh, because, you know, our friends from Sweden, they come here and they are almost envious in a good way. They say... The stereotype in Sweden is that folklore, folk music is for old people only. Uh, so we do have to kind of make these adaptations. And I think Latvia is a very good success story in this case because, you know, it's a country that's less than 2 million people. And yet we have about 220 folk groups. And it's not only the older generations, it's also the younger people. And you could even say that there are some core people that they teach the joy of music, the joy of the tradition to younger people. They grow up and then they teach their kids and their friends get pulled into this uh, whole thing, I guess. It's maybe even uh, not only the folk music, but uh, this, uh, this Latvian tradition of singing is, uh, is very uh, common in uh, all, all nations, maybe not folklore, but choirs and, and, and all this stuff. We have those uh, sing festivals every four years when, when 20,000 people are uh, singing on one stage. And this is like a whole week festival and, and, and it's a, I don't know, holiday, official state holiday when the concert is, uh, is going. So it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's very famous. It's very, it's very, it's very 
ordinaries that young people sing in choirs, for example, not old people, and not only in choirs, but in, in, in all other uh, music engagements. Music uh, and singing, it's, it's one of uh, really big traditions of Latvian culture in, in every way. So the folk music is a very big one as well, but not only. There's also another point that I find very fascinating. Uh, traditionally, the post-Soviet countries uh, aren't very happy about having been within the Soviet Union because of the economic uh, and social setbacks. And yet, the fact that Latvians had to hide their heritage from the Soviet regime uh, made us very spiteful. And this is one of the motivations that has kept this tradition alive. So, in spite of it actually being physically dangerous, we have kept it alive. And that's maybe why uh, it has recently exploded so much. But uh, that is also the reason why do we don't have the um, fiddles and fiddle players and violinists, so that you mentioned this, because in Sweden, uh, the uh, tradition still kept going going on and uh, they just practiced uh, more but we got set back like 50 years because it got stopped you couldn't uh, pub publicly you couldn't uh, um, practice your craft and uh, that's why you, after the collapse of the Soviet Union you just began uh, almost from point zero to evolve and uh, new new generation started to try and uh, get a grasp on things that uh, other countries just um, went on and uh, for example I'm playing instrument kuoklo that's a Latvian traditional instrument and uh, the levels between for example the same Sweden that I have kuoklo uh, playing uh, studies in uh, the music academy of music it's an official uh, course they have uh, they have theory and they have practices and they have very uh, talented players and their technique is so exquisite and breathtaking and I, I cannot wrap my hand, uh, head around it. How can they do it? And ju they just say that you have been stopped for 50 years and you haven't been evolving. So uh, we are now, we're beginning the journey when where, where it just stopped. So... Uh, I'm a bit disappointed by that because um, I see where we could have been if not for the Soviet Union, the occupation. So under Soviet rule, on the surface, uh, the official declarations were that the Soviet Union supported uh, cultures of all, in all languages and of all peoples, of all nations. Once again, Professor Guntis Smidchens. The policy was one of uh, was different than that. The policy was one of uh, gradually merging all the different languages and nations of the Soviet Union into one single Soviet nation. And the path to that would be the the the, the phrase is national inform socialist and content. So where people are. Uh, speaking in different languages and singing in different languages, the content of what they're doing would be uniform all over all over the Soviet Union. And gradually, in the late 70s, there was a gradual shift in policy towards assimilation of all the all the uh, Baltic populations uh, to Russian language as they're building the Soviet the Soviet man. Uh, uh, and so. 
this kind of formal manipulation of what people can have in the culture and in their language led to, it can be called resistance, you know, doing things that aren't allowed, or just persistence, persisting in, in singing things that you had been singing before. And I, I see the folk song movement as a persistent movement of people saying, you know, our parents and grandparents and these people we meet in the countryside sang this way and sing this way, and we, we just want to continue this kind of singing. And that's the movement that uh, Vilkachi grew out of. It's uh, a movement which was constantly in friction with the Soviet government and Soviet cultural policies because uh, it was national in form or, or uh, regional in form, but the content, making that content into socialist content was complicated and problematic. And so when people are not following the directions of the cultural organizers, they're actually resisting cultural policies of the Soviet Union. This is why the folk song singers were in Latvia treated as dissidents. They were uh, persecuted by the KGB. Their uh, performances were banned. All kinds of, uh, of attempts to stop this uh, non-regulated, un, un, uh, un, unorganized, not soviet organized movement of singing in a different way. Were, um, were folk singers arrested, deported, or...? This is now, uh, in an earlier time, under this under Stalinist rule, yes, cultural activists who did things that weren't allowed would be arrested, sent to Siberia. But now this would be the 1960s, 1970s, when um, it's no longer violent control of the population. What would happen is, say, in Latvia's conservatory, which is the music academy, a student wants to start a folk song group. The group is not given permission to perform, and the student is not given permission to take final exams, meaning their career is done. <laughs> that would be an example of how uh, uh, control of culture was happening in the 70s when, the, when in Latvia, when the folk song movement broke out. So there are earlier examples of people being arrested, which people remember, and the danger of performing things. It was illegal to go on stage and perform something that had not been given the stamp of approval. Everything that was performed on stage had been on a program given to the government censors who put their stamp on it, and then there will be people in the audience who are, uh, who are watching to make sure that they're not singing or even saying anything that was not planned in advance. And so with the folk song performers, starting with just the music, the instruments, where improvisation is a big part of it, this already is this, uh, it's a complicated relationship for, between the performers and the censors. The censors don't quite know what to do when a fiddler plays a dance four times instead of three times, for example. <laughs> so this is where they were pushing the boundaries. And the same with the songs that they will be singing songs that are, that are all the folk songs that are written down uh, word for word on, on pieces of paper from earlier folk tradition. They would perform those. But then when the tradition requires improvisation, uh, then they would improvise. And sometimes the improvisation would, would leak over into other performances. And that was a 
problem that the government censors couldn't quite solve in any other way than simply by um, banning groups from public performance. Or, or there was a folklore festival going on where these groups would be coming and performing for each other. Early 1980s, that was shut down. Simply no more, no more stages for them was, was the Soviet government's response to this movement. So performers found ways occasionally to, to speak to the rest of the nation through their performances. Yeah, what they, the, the, the discussion was about authentic culture, that authentic folk songs meant something to people singing them. And we are singing songs that are meaningful to us. In Latvia, you know, so we have these old wedding, tr- wedding traditional songs. Well, we should sing them at weddings. We have traditional funeral songs. We should sing them at funerals because that's the context in which they are authentic. And uh, this feeling or belief that folklore is somehow more authentic because it responds to actual personal needs uh, took really deep root. And by the 1980s, this this was probably what was the main driving force for the movement. In many ways, it was not a political movement only in the, in the idea that the Soviet government required in performances uh, declarations of allegiance to the Communist Party, to socialist ideology, to this, this, this. And because the folklore, folklore performers said, well, in the earlier traditions, there was no communist ideology, so we can't think about that. So by, by, uh, by finding an argument to not sing government propaganda, it was a political movement too. But where politics uh, came out in the open was in the late 1980s, 1988, in July 1988 in Latvia, it was this folklore festival that was happening. We're at the opening of the festival, it was going to be songs about sunshine and, and nature, and that, but the singers went on stage and took out flags of Indo- the Independent Republic of Latvia. And there were also Lithuanians taking Lithuania's flag and Estonians taking Estonia's flag. There was declaring that the flag we're performing under now when we're singing our folklore is not the red flag of the Soviet Union. We have our own flag. And so it's like it's a very visual action, but that visual action was a declaration of independence. Up to that point, you could say, well, folk songs are, are they're not really explicitly for or against the Soviet Union. They, they are still kind of allowed. But once, visually, they said, we are singing these songs to declare independence, that's where the folklore movement took off in a very political direction. And built into the movement, built, built into folklore, folk songs, uh, is the fact that it's very easy to perform and learn them. It's called response songs. So, you know, a couple of people know the words. People who don't know the words repeat the words. And, or there's refrains that everybody learns, and it's very easy to sing along. The folk dances are very easy. You just learn a few steps, and suddenly you're dancing there too. Where Soviet culture was very professionalized, very specialized, the stage culture, this was culture that could easily come off the stage and lots and lots of people could get involved in the singing and the dancing. And, and in Latvia, that's the mechanism by which this whole movement became a mass movement in 1988. By 1988, Soviet censorship collapsed. There was no longer a will. Early 1988, so this person who carried the flag 
openly in Riga in early June 1988, was arrested and and uh, sent out of the Soviet Union, deported out of the Soviet Union. Uh, and by July, because there were so many people all over, it would have required mass repressions. And I, I think two things happened. One, it was almost impossible to get the repressive apparatus, to get it to arrest everybody who was not obeying. And second, I think that... Uh, the entire government of the Soviet Union, all these individuals there got tired of forcing people what to do and basically um, stopped censorship, allowed elections to happen, and then in the very end, uh, in 1991, let these countries go and become independent countries. And that's, that's a big credit to those, Mikhail Gorbachev and the other leaders of the Soviet Union, that they decided not to go the violent direction when people were self-expressing politically to let them do that. So I saw you give a lecture in Scant 100 about the singing revolution as a nonviolent revolution. Yes. This is an important part of the story which I kind of glossed over very quickly. The communist government of the Soviet Union did in late 1990 and early and particularly 1991, uh, use violence to try to put down this ma- these mass independence movements. It wasn't mass violence. It, it was generally targeted. So when in January 1991, the government decided to shut down television in Lithuania, then uh, they sent in soldiers and tanks, the nonviolent resistors standing around as a human shield uh, were run over by tanks, were shot by, by soldiers as, as, as that one television tower fell. But then there would be more television towers. There, there, uh, there's printing presses to take over. And so where I think the tactics was to frighten people uh, away from being these, not, these unarmed human shields around every item that the Soviet Union now needed to control, uh, instead, what happened was people were inspired. There's the, the, uh, yeah, the television tower, seeing the television tower or the printing presses of Vilnius surrounded by singing people who were defeated in that one battle. But instead of hiding in their houses, more and more people came out to defend the next, uh, the next object that the government wanted to take over. So the parliaments were defended in this way and there was no clashes anymore then. What was the role of song in that moment? So historians might disagree. In my own research, I was finding that historians couldn't quite deal with uh, songs and singing. That generally when they describe these events of nonviolent defenders of the parliament facing off armed, with armed soldiers and tanks, they kind of very quickly told that story and then move on to how these countries negotiated their independence with Moscow. Um, and so the question of whether songs were necessary in this so-called singing revolution, it was called the singing revolution while it was taking place because people were saying songs are our weapon. They're our sword and our shield. And that's why we are singing and we're not going to uh, fight these soldiers. But whether singing was needed for this nonviolent movement is an interesting question. Uh, when I look at the videos or listen to stories about people at these very tense moments of confrontation with armed soldiers and the stories that they were singing, 
amongst themselves. Uh, my quick answer is yes, the songs were necessary. What do songs do for people? And here I, I work with singers today too. Songs build self-confidence. If you can stand up and sing in front of people, you have self-esteem, self-confidence, you have trust in the people around you. And for a nonviolent movement to succeed, you have to have trust in the people around you. You have to have self-esteem. You have to have bravery. And where does bravery come from? It comes from things people say and things people feel. And in Latvia and in Estonia, Lithuania too, songs were expressing unity in face of oppression. Uh, that's what gave people bravery to go out there unarmed. Uh, so that's the mechanism by which songs were... Without songs, I think there wouldn't have been these masses of people defending the parliaments. And it would have been very easy to send in a few soldiers, take over parliament, arrest those few hundred government officials, and it would be over. But there were, there were tens of thousands of people that a tank would have to drive across and soldiers would have to beat their way through. Every soldier has this a very difficult choice to make of whether to aim their weapon at people who are only singing. Uh, and that cost was too high of a price for keeping the Soviet Union together. And, and, and uh, those people got their energy from singing. I would say that uh, one, of the, one of the best answers for this, uh, for your question, is we play for ourselves. And uh, that's, that's what I do. And uh, I would say that all of us do it. Because uh, if you enjoy what you're doing, if you do it for yourself, then it doesn't matter who is listening, but the person who will hear us or the person who hears that someone is doing something for himself, he would always hear that uh, very uh, beautiful. Because... Uh, uh, we always talk about it that uh, it uh, it's not a work, it's not something hard. It could be, and it it does, but uh, it always is uh, for 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 ourselves. And uh, if we do a concert, and uh, if we are tired, uh, it it doesn't always uh, hear that. It doesn't always sound that 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 uh, that comforting. For example, the, the 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 person who's listening for us when we're tired, he, they can hear, they can see this because we're not professionals. Uh, we could we could be professionals if we would study in the in the Sweden uh, uh, University of Kukle, but uh, we are not. So we still we're still amateurs, and uh, the best thing is that we do it for ourselves. So uh, it. Uh, um, we have had big concerts in big halls in Latvia, for example. There are, uh, uh, it doesn't matter which city, but the, the very uh, freshly built, huge stages that we have sang. And uh, the feeling there is that we still sing for ourselves. It doesn't matter if the hall is full or empty, we still enjoy because we do it for ourselves. And uh, that's the most beautiful thing because we can sit around a campfire and gain the same emotions that you gain singing in front of hundreds of people. That would be answer from my from my from myself.
Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbitt. Today's music was used with permission from Vilkachi and is available on Spotify. Search for Vilkachi, V-I-L-K-A-C-I. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and about other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a class or becoming a major. Professor Guntis Smidgens teaches several courses on the history, literature, cultures, and politics of the Baltic countries. Don't know where to start? Consider taking his Introduction to Folklore Studies. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu. Scandinavian.